this will be the first time in American history by 2050 that we will be a non-white European majority country. America has never gone through that before. And because we have not gone through that before, and that is exactly why I think we have so much tension. Welcome back to Cabot Talks. This is Brian Cabotech, the slightly shorter, but much more handsome and much more funny of the Cabotech brothers. I'm the former president of the Consumer Attorneys of California, former president of the LA County Bar, been involved in California politics for most of my adult life, or at least I'd like to pretend my adult life. And I'm joined, of course, by my brother, John. And hello, everybody. My name's John Kabatek. I am the slightly taller brother with the terrible dad jokes, but that's okay because I got two great kids to back that up, and they'll they'll roll their eyes as well. I am the Cal- I'm the president of Kabatek Strategies, a full service public affairs firm, and also wear the hat as California State Director of the National Federation of Independent Business, the leading small business advocacy group in California and the nation. And great- John and I have slightly different political views or sometimes considerably different political views. And John, why don't you introduce today's guest? We have a great friend with us today, uh, somebody I've known for, gosh, three decades back when my hair was brown, Mike Madrid. Mike is the founding director and president of Grassroots Lab. Grassroots Lab is a full-service public relations firm based here in Sacramento that is focused on community engagement, online organizing, coalition building, and they do a lot of research, a lot of great grassroots research. Uh, Mike brings more than 30 years of expertise as a political strategist. He's helped to change the outcomes of political campaigns at every level, local, state, national. He told me he just got back from Brazil. My gosh. So he's all over the globe. But Mike wears many hats, but he's a nationally recognized expert on Latino voting trends. He's a graduate of the Edmund G. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, where he wrote his senior thesis on Latino politics. Actually, I understand Mike's work has become a basis of pioneering work on Latino communications and outreach strategies in a lot of state elections over the past several decades. Mike's had extensive experience in local governments in California. I've known him back to when he was public affairs director for the League of California Cities. He was instrumental in passing Prop 1A. Many of you may recall that. That was a historic achievement that helped protect local government revenues from the state raise, from the state coming into local governments and taking that money. He's been lead communication staff for the California Assembly Republican leader, and he was political director director for the California Republican Party. And in 2011, Mike helped create the Leadership California Institute, which is dedicated to helping train future leaders in the Golden State. And he's the editor and publisher of California City News, which is dedicated to policy and politics in California. But also, Mike, we'll talk a little bit about, has helped to co-found the Lincoln Project, a political movement focused on helping to steer Republicans on the right track, but also holding our leaders accountable. So without further ado, Mike Madrid, great to have you. Welcome. Welcome, Mike. And Mike, tell my brother what language they speak in Brazil. He may not know this. They speak Portuguese. Did you know that, John? Do you know what Portuguese is? And it's not a sausage. I thought it was Spanglish. I thought it was Spanglish. Am I wrong? I I think it's the original Spanglish, actually. It actually (laughs) does. You can you can kind of get by. But yeah, it's Portuguese. There's actually a big debate as to whether Brazilians are Latino or not, because if you're Hispanic, you're of a Spanish-speaking origin country, and it's Brazil is not. It's, it's Portuguese, so it's you know, it's debatable. I mean, we could talk about the Brazilians if you'd like, but we don't have to either. 
Well, it, really what I do want to talk about, I mean, I'm sort of fascinated in this, Mike, is is the, the Latino vote, voter. And, you know, our program mostly focuses on California, but we can get outside of California if we want and talk about politics outside. But I am just so fascinated in the the notion of the the Latino voter. I mean, I think first of all, one of the misconceptions that people have is that there is a single mindset when it comes to Latino voters that they vote as a block. But I just sort of want to open up the discussion and let you talk a little bit about Latino voters in California and where things are looking with respect to to them. Well, thanks. I mean, it's a great question. And it's kind of the work of my life and my career, obviously born uh, Hispanic, Mexican-American descent from Ventura County. I was able to kind of see both the Reagan Library from, you know, my front yard, as well as the, you know, field workers who were working in the uh, agricultural community surrounding it. And that was kind of the environment that I grew up in this kind of different worlds, politically speaking, and watching the Latino electorate kind of change over the course of my adult career and trajectory. And so I knew very early on, early 1990s, late 1980s, that I wanted to study and research and watch what I think has become known, or as I refer to it as the Latinization of America, the Latinization of California, because I knew that in the 30, 40, 50 years of my career, every year it would get you know significantly greater and have much more influence. The truth of the matter is there is an extraordinary amount of diversity within the Latino community, that is true. But at least as it goes in California, and California is proving to be an exception nationally, we actually have as a community voted like a voting bloc. 75 plus, 75% of Latinos in California vote for Democrats. It's one of the reasons, it's one of three big reasons why California has become as blue a state as it is. And I think that we are really on the verge of really seeing a dramatic transformation in that politically nationally because of differences in national origin, because of differences in religion, education levels, all of the reasons that make up a very diverse American electorate. We are witnessing Hispanics start to dramatically diversify themselves, ourselves. And I think it's going to change the American experiment. I think it's going to change American democracy. And for the first time in this country, we will become a non-white majority country when all of our lifetimes, even John's lifetime, Assuming he'll make it, he's going to do fine. He'll live three lifetimes, three lifetimes. (laughs) And so, you know, by the end of our lifetimes, you know, whites in America will become a plurality the same way we have in California. And part of the tensions that we see in this country are directly correlate to that demographic transformation. And it's what fascinates me. It's what I, I just find really interesting as a political scientist and observer, as well as a practitioner who practitioner who actually runs campaigns. Mike, I was going to say, you know, and have come, come, coming from the Republican circles and us both, you know, it, Latino voting tilting towards Democrat, obviously that number is pretty startling. Is that a sign that the that the Democrat Party and the Democratic principles resonate more with Latinos or has the Republican Party failed? Are there more issues that actually Latinos should be glomming onto in the Republican Party? I know you get that question all the time, but no, what's it's, it's important. And I think it's, it, it's a great question because I think answering that question is helping national Democrats understand the rightward shift that is happening nationally when they just thought, oh, you know, the, let's just wait every election cycle. There will be more Latinos nationally, and then we'll turn the country into California politically. That is not happening. And it really does get down to the crux of, I think, that question, which is there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the Latino vote has largely been mobilized as an anti-Republican vote, not a pro-Democratic vote. 
Now, that's not all of it. There's clearly a wide constituency of Democratic voters in the Latino electorate. But one of the major problems that Latino voters have, one of the major characteristics that my community displays is extraordinarily low turnout levels, right? Latinos are still only 20% of the electorate in California. We're nearly 40% of the population. We're we're about 20% of the voters. And we have the largest number of citizen eligible voters that don't show up to vote. And so you have to ask yourself the question, why? And one of the answers is, you have a party, a Republican party, that's just openly antagonistic mm. to, to, to the Latino electorate, has been for 20 years. But there isn't a positive aspirational agenda that's mobilizing Latinos from the Democratic Party either. It's all driven by cultural issues that, that just are not relatable. It's not that they're anti-Democrat. They're just not relating to the Democratic Party. And, and only when the Republican Party gets so egregious do they show up and mobilize And so you've got this large constituency of people, the fastest growing segment of the electorate, pretty alienated from the political process. Hey, I want to go I want to kind of go back to this whole notion, because one of my working theories is that there's an awful lot in traditional and let's underline and highlight the word traditional Republican policy, sort of pre-Trump, pre this this far right movement that would be, in my mind, attractive to a lot of Latinos, maybe not all Latinos, but a lot of Latinos, you know, family values, hard work, church and state, and those kinds of issues. Yet the Republicans do seem to alienate themselves from the Latinos. And and it's one of those areas where I'm not exactly sure why. You may disagree with my whole theory, but- No, I mean, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying. And again, it's a question that I've heard many, many times over the last 30 years. The rejoinder to that is, I mean, I don't think Democrats are not hardworking people, right, or have a hardworking message and issues. I think that increasingly their message is very focused on college-educated voters and white progressives, and that leaves a huge gap with Latino voters, between them and Latino voters. But look, I remember Jack Kemp, and you know, back in the Reagan era, would, would talk about this dynamic and saying, we need to talk about entrepreneurship because Latinos have a strong entrepreneurial proclivity. They're a Catholic, you know, socially conservative, traditional values, family, hard work ethic, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, there's there's truth to all of that. But, but at some point, there has to be some policy nexus. And the truth is, I've never really heard much of that in my professional career, even though I became a Republican because of Jack Kemp, not because of Reagan, but because of Kemp. And you also have to ask yourself the question, if if all of that is true, why are we seeing nationally more Latinos voting for Donald Trump than we were seeing vote for the traditional Republican Party? And that begs a whole lot of uncomfortable questions <laughs> that need to be answered. But look, my, 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 my belief, my life story is, is, speaks to what you just said, Brian. It's, it's literally those that value system. My goal, my hope was to always politically translate that into tangible policies so that the Latino community, my community, again, could have, I think, a different, more aspirational, optimistic view of its climb, its traditional climb through and up to the middle class and hopefully beyond its climb into higher educational opportunities, its climb into basically an assimilative process that would basically mirror what we saw with Italians Jews, Greeks, Armenians, you know, in the past, where there's an upwardly mobile trajectory. That was my hope, because I saw so many Latinos 
coming. They keep coming, right? And the the hope was, could we reconcile that as an American people? Because remember, and again, I'll end with this. I'm sorry if I've gone on too long with that answer, but this will be the first time in American history by 2050 that we will be a non-white European majority country. America has never gone through that before. And because we have not gone through that before, it really does challenge a lot of the notions of what our American identity is. And that is exactly why I think we have so much tension in our society today. It's why the Republican Party has basically lost its freaking mind. Go ahead. Well, John, before you before you jump into that, I just and I, I want to stay on the subject for a couple more minutes because I, I find it just incredibly fascinating. I agree with you on one thing is that the Democrats, at least on a national basis, have have done a terrible job of trying to make themselves attractive to working class people, you know, upwardly mobile people because of this college educated limousine liberal, you know, lover or hater, Nancy Pelosi kind of thing. And I, I agree with that. I, I want to focus on California for a second. Is one of the reasons the California California Republican Party has lost Latinos is because of Prop 187. I've thought that for a long time. I thought they lost the Latino vote for a generation because of 187. I would suggest that that was the beginning of a longer term problem that the Republicans had and have had. I don't think that is deniable. There's no question that 187 and Governor Wilson, a friend of mine, former boss, I think, and friend of John's. I I respect uh, them as well. I mean, the the guy brought people together on lots of issues. Yeah, yeah. I, and I don't have any issues with 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 Pete. I mean, we disagree politically now. He was a Trump guy. I was obviously very anti-Trump, but we see things differently now. But at the time, I think that you know, Proposition 187 catalyzed a political movement that was somewhat unique in Latino American history. Now, having said that, for it to continue, you know, decades hence means that there's something else fundamentally going on. And I would what I would suggest, and this might be a little bit controversial. I've got 30 years of data to back it up is California's middle class is collapsing and it has been collapsing for the past past couple of decades. And so there's very, very, very little economic mobility for people of color, for Brown and black people in California. It's virtually non-existent. Most of it's backsliding. We're very good at creating poverty. We're very good at creating, you know, a very stratified economic society. We're not good at building middle-class jobs, especially for people without a college education, and that is the Latino community. And as a result, what we have is we have a very wealthy California that tends to be overwhelmingly white, increasingly Asian, and we've got a very poor California, which is overwhelmingly Latino. And when you don't have a middle class, you don't have a Republican party. And I'm not saying that as a as an editorial position. That's just data. That's just if you look at zip codes of middle class voters, right? The Republican Party, right or wrongly, I'm not making a judgment call. I don't care. I just look at the data. Is the party of the working class? It's the party of of working people, the non college educated blue collar workforce. And as the as the Democratic Party becomes more concentrated with college educated, overwhelmingly white voters. What we're seeing is this separation of the classes manifesting itself politically. And so California is a very wealthy and a very poor state. They both vote for Democrats because they have one thing in common. They hate Republicans. And and the Republican middle class has been completely hollowed out. Like you guys, you guys are from Glendale, right? 
So when you were growing, when you guys were growing up, like the eighties were the heyday military spending was going through the the roof. It was, you know, this was the golden years of California Reaganomics, Mm -hmm. right? It was, Mm -hmm. it was tax cuts and massive military spending 1984 Olympics. It's like, it was the best time to be growing up in Glendale, Burbank, Pasadena area. California has demonstrated a really unique political pattern from the rest of the country as it relates to Latino voters, because in large part, because we have a hollowing out middle class and that, that lack of economic mobility, that lack of upward mobility has stunted the political development of the, I would argue the Latino community in this state. And so what we believed was going to be the future, because California is always a predictor of the futures, you know, the, the rest of the country's politics, right? We're always 10, 15 years ahead what we found was California is actually an exception in the largest demographic transformation to ever happen in this country. It is not the rule. It was not a preview of coming attractions. It is proving to be an exception. Well, Mike, let me ask you this, though. I mean, let's just to, to face the facts here, you know, the Democrats in California and frankly, nationally, for the most part, have the keys to the castle, right? Legislature, most, I mean, all constitutional offices, the White House. Okay, this middle class that's been, that's been hollowed out and is kind of waning here, you know, who's been in charge for the past several years, right? We see people and we see crime and homelessness, inflation as big issues. Do you think as you're looking ahead at this election cycle, you know, we may not be turning red and we've said this before on previous podcasts with people on both sides, but do we, do you envision kind of voters turning at least more purple? I mean, we've got Democrats in charge, Mike, who have been failures on many levels or at least not improved. Brian, here we go. Oh, come on. Failures. Failures sure, and leadership. Failures. Oh. We haven't moved. Not one bill got out of our public safety committees on criminal justice reform. And, and crime is uh, through the roof. Inflation has been a complete soaring through the roof. We have problems here with our supply chain and other issues. But things are stagnated, it Brian. And Brian, the Democrats for inflation. Well, yeah, you know, you wow, can. Oh, well, that's yeah. amazing. Ah, uh, go ahead. I'm no, just I'm saying, most, down. most, are, Brian, most are in charge. Most are in charge right now. Hey, and the D side. Global economy. Who's economy? Do voters change, Mike? Do voters change? Uh, No, but let me, I think what I can do is I can explain a little bit of some of the differences here and kind of reconcile why we are stuck where we're at. It actually comes from a conversation that I had with Jim Brulte, the former chairman of the Republican Party, who would actually be a great guest for you guys, I think, at some point. Jim's a dear friend. And he sat me down and kind of said, Mike, I know we see things a little bit differently in the direction of the party. But let me break this down. California has the worst income inequality problem in America. It has the worst housing inaffordability anywhere in the country. It's probably the worst in terms of higher educational attainment and jobs opportunities for Latinos and African Americans. I can go on and on and on. So public school performance rates, the you know prison pipeline that we build for minorities. Like at what point, same question you're asking, at what point do the voters get fed up And aren't they going to swing back, right? And my answer is no. There's no law saying that the voters have to swing back because despite all of that, despite all of these facts, despite exploding homelessness and exploding crime and housing and affordability and and all of this stuff, voters still do not view the Republican Party as a viable alternative because, one, the Republican Party has no ideas, and two, it has become an ethno-populist nationalist party. It is no longer trying to govern. 
And people know that. People are not dumb. They do not like where they're at. The wrong track in California has been pretty strong for some time, especially with middle class and lower economic groups. This is very difficult states to live in unless you're white and college educated and, and, and own a home. If you, if you meet those three criteria, California is a great place to live. If, you, if, you, if you're missing one of those, it gets harder. If you're missing two of those, it gets exponentially harder. If you miss three, it's impossible. So no, there is no law that says the pendulum is going to swing back. There is no law saying that the voters are going to come, become more purple. The Republican Party is going to continue to get more extreme, more marginalized, more irrelevant, and it's going to be happy as a clam doing that because it's martyrdom has become a test of its own purity and its own self-righteousness as it slips into but the, complete irrelevance. But Mike, the voters, the folks who have historically voted Democrat, looking at the face of things right now, do you at least feel that many of them are going to look for more pro-business Democrats, pro-economic, yeah, pro-public yeah. safety? I, that's I probably where things will trend. Yeah, that's what I've that's what i Sometimes. Been told. Not always. Yeah, not always. I not agree. Always. I agree I mean, with that. I don't disagree always. with that. And especially on cultural issues. Yeah. Especially on cultural issues. But but look, our economy is broken. Our middle class is dying. We grow poverty in California at a rate that is just unheard of in the developed world in California. And we're proud of it, by the way. We're proud of it. You had to work really, really hard in California over the last 20 years to screw up all of the strengths that we have and have had. And we've done a really good job of it. And I'm not saying that as a partisan, I'm the first guy in line to take on my party happily, gleefully, and say the Republican parties have lost their, their mind. And I'm also, I'm having dinner with a democratic legislator tonight because they, I think want to, they want to learn. They want to hear about some of these things and, and have these discussions. These are undeniable facts, and it has always surprised me that the Democrats, who are the people that believe in government, will always say, well, that's never our fault. All of the bad stuff is never never their fault, right? Mm. When, when clearly, like, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not even, it's not a partisan attack. This is not a good state to live in unless you're white, college-educated, and have a home. There are some exceptions, of course. Yeah, but they and are it's still expensive. It's still expensive. If you fit into that demographic, it's still of an course, expensive, it's difficult place to live. It's really hard. It's like, you know, let's be honest. We have great weather. Yeah. And great white collar jobs. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and, and we are creating more of those, by the way. That's the irony is we are growing that part of the economy, but we have to literally import highly trained, highly skilled immigrants because we are not educating our kids for those jobs. That's the great moral. And, and I was reading the Wall Street Journal today, and there's less immigrants now yeah. than there was three years ago. Yeah. And that's, that's legal hurting. immigrants. I'm legal, talking yeah, about legal yeah. immigrants. Yeah. Legal immigrants is down. That's hurting our economy. That's creating, like, when people go, why aren't, you know, why aren't there are restaurants open? It's not because. Yeah, the, the right wingers would say, oh, it's because, you know, we're giving them checks and they're they're not they're, we're paying them not to work. That's complete nonsense. The problem is legal immigration has declined to such a point that the people who are making our service economy work aren't there anymore. And this is what happens when you start cramping down so much on legal immigration that you start to choke off your own economy. That's just a concept that Republicans 
do not get. They just refuse to understand basic supply and demand, which is ironic coming from the party that claims to believe in it. Well, yeah, and I think there's uh, there's other reasons too. And you know, one of the reasons also is a lot of these service jobs that used to go to high school and college age kids where the parents have a little bit of money, they don't want their kids working anymore. I mean, I had a high school job, you know, I worked in a gas station. And today you just don't see kids from kind of upper middle-class families taking high school jobs. They're not out there. They're not working in restaurants. So they're looking desperately for people to work those jobs. I'm not, you know, I'm not overly critical of that issue, but I think it's, it's, it just shows that there's a number of factors at work in my opinion. Sure. Hey, Mike, tell us about the Lincoln Project in, in the spirit of kind of being kind of up in arms with your own with your own party and kind of where things have been headed and what motivated you to do that. And just tell us a little bit about that. Well, look, I've been I've been involved in Republican politics for 30 years. And as I mentioned, I joined the Republican Party because of men like Jack Kemp, primarily like, I, you know, I, I was interested in the Republican Party because of Ronald Reagan, but be, I became a Republican. I became a conservative because of Jack Kemp. Jack Kemp's philosophy was very, very much focused on the idea that we have an obligation to be our, our brother's keeper. We have an obligation to look out for one another. It doesn't mean you give them a government program or you know all that kind of right-wing rhetoric, but we, I, I believe every one of us has a job here to make the world a better place. And cons the conservative philosophy spoke to me because I saw more opportunities being opened through a lot of what was being preached at that time, less regulation, lower taxes, let's free up the economy, let's build working class jobs for working class people. And I saw the Democrats choking that off. And I, I, to me, the answer was pretty clear. I found the evidence for it, saw it, you know, researched it, studied it, and it became something very, very important to me. But over time, in the mid-1990s, I started to see the party turning into something that was less focused on helping people out and much more focused on keeping people out and keeping people down and limiting people's rights. And it started to metastasize into something that was completely opposite of what I had joined. And I, I removed myself from a partisan perspective after working for the Republican Party, after doing a bunch of Republican candidates, because I just couldn't really stomach it after a while and, and thought maybe at some point this fever will break. My hope was that it would in the 2016 primaries, but when Donald Trump ascended to become the nominee, to me, that was the, the full complete collapse of the Republican Party. And not only did I decide to quietly step out and step away from it, I felt that I had an obligation to use every bit of my experience and network and credibility to kill it. And it, I think that's what it needs. The, the Trumpist element in our society is dangerous. It is a threat to the Republic. It is a scourge on us as a people. And it is a, is a fascistic movement that is against everything that I've ever believed as a conservative and as an American. Look, I, I and I commend you for saying that. I mean, there are very few profiles in courage in the Republican leadership, the Republic, in my opinion, in the Republican Party leadership. And and look, I don't agree with Liz Cheney on a lot of stuff, but I certainly commend her for her taking the position that she took. And, you know, there may have been political reasons she did it. But but right now it's frustrating because you 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 look at the party and it seems to be you're either 100 percent with Trump or you're an enemy. Yeah, it's a which is a cult, by the way. <laughs> That's not a political party. <laughs> uh, you just defined it exactly right. That the Republican Party is not a 
party anymore in any in any conventional use of the term. You know, John and I used to be involved in all these fights all the time, moderates versus conservatives, taxes versus no taxes, you know, pro-life, pro-choice. Yep. That's all that's healthy. That's that is a political party is you have a philosophy of governance. And in the under that philosophy, you debate policies and you take positions and you curry support and you advance your agenda to build a better society for people. That's not what the Republican Party is today. There's only one only one untenable position you can take, and that is you cannot speak ill of Donald Trump. And if you do, you are castigated and berated and run out of the party, which proud of myself for that. You know, I, I, I wear that proudly because it's so clear what is going on, but that is not a political party. That, that's a cult. Like literally it is the definition of a cult. And what we're seeing is extremely cultish behavior coupled with a lot of cowardice, a ton of cowardice, and a hell of a lot of enabling, which has really, I think, brought our country to the precipice of, of grave, grave danger. Predict the future. For the party, for the country, for the world? Well, let's just start with the party. Oh, I think the party is going to continue to decline in its relevance. There will be obviously some election cycles where it does well. I think there's still the Republicans are still the odds on favorite to probably win the House by 10 seats or so. I don't think that they'll pick up the Senate. But the long term prognosis, the long term trajectory is very, very bad for the Republican Party. In fact, I would suggest that the years that were very formative for, for me and for, for, for John and you know, in the Capitol are a perfect example of what is going to happen. We have to remember after Prop 187, after 1994, Pete Wilson's reelect, the, the, the two, three, four election cycles after that, Republicans were extremely anti-immigrant. There was bills introduced constantly from state legislators attacking and immigration generally, illegal immigration specifically. That ended in 2013 um, with an Alejo bill, the uh, driver's licenses for the undocumented bill, which passed in 2013. And that bill had bipartisan support. Republicans finally jumped on and said, we're, we're no longer going to be the party that attacks immigrants. We're going to be a party that is trying to be constructive. It was too late by then. But what we're seeing play out nationally is almost word for word, play by play, the exact same roadmap that Republicans took down the road to irrelevancy between 1994 and 2013. I think that's what's going to continue to happen. Mike, is he is Trump definitely in it to win it for 24? Is that kind of what signs you're getting? I don't think he has any choice. I think his legal problems have gotten so big that his only uh, potential leverage is political. It's, it's not a good tool, but it's his only tool. So yes, I think he will get in. I think that he probably wins the nomination. At this point, I think a lot's going to change in the next three, four, five, six months. But I, I think he's very unlikely to win the presidency because he is going to be extremely damaged amongst independent voters. You saw some of that in the primaries last night in New York and Florida and Alaska. What you're seeing is Donald Trump getting stronger in Republican primaries, but he's getting weaker with independents and mobilizing Democrats against them, and it's killing the party. Yeah, that's that's what I wonder, is that you're going to suddenly see these very strong pro-Trump candidates running, and is it going to turn off a small part of the Republican Party? It's going to take the independents. It's going to push them into the Democrats. It's good. The Democrats are going to be emboldened by it. I, I don't... That's what I would see happening, maybe not in every race, but in some of the races, that's clearly going to happen. 
Well, Brian, that's exactly what happened in California. As I was saying in the late 90s, early 2000s, that dynamic is the candidates in the Republican Party were getting more extreme. They were concentrating their power in, the, in a shrinking Republican base, but they alienated completely independents who said these people are absolutely freaking nuts. And Democrat turnout exploded at the same time to vote against Republicans more so than voting for Democrats. And that's how you get to a blue state. And that is still, I think, a very good potentiality for the country, but it's going to take a couple of decades to get there. Well, California is a good example. I mean, look, I look at, at, at the electeds in the Republican electeds in California, and there aren't too many of them that have tied themselves closely to Trump, right? So maybe it's a model for what might happen in the rest of the country going down the road. You know, I wrote an article uh, uh, for the Sacramento Bee called The Republican Reckoning. I think it's ironic that Lon He Chen running for controller and Hawkman, the Republican nominee for attorney general, the two strongest Republican candidates statewide, both came out as anti-Trump, saying that they never voted for Donald Trump in 16 or in 20, and they're both pro-choice. So you've got the two top most viable candidates openly against Trumpism. Are they going to win? No, they're not going to win. But they are perhaps presaging a new direction where the fever might be breaking in California. I don't know that that's the case, but I do think it's a fascinating development. I thought it was so interesting. I'd, I'd write a piece for the B and and it ran a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things outside of California is that one of the best things that the pro-Trump Republican Party has going for them on some cases is the Democratic Party. They can't free themselves of the far left progressives, the ASCs. They can't, you know, they can't seem to free themselves of this limousine liberal image. And I, I think that, you know, to be critical of my own people, I think that's the biggest problem they have. And California, we can talk about separately, but nationally, I think that's a, you know, a tremendous problem. Well, one of the, let me take that a little bit further because it's a great observation. One of the biggest phenomenon that is driving voter behavior in American politics today is a concept called negative partisanship. We all know what partisanship is, but negative partisanship is the idea that people are primarily voting, uh, are driven to, to motivated to vote against something as opposed to, to for something. So what is uniting Democrats is voting against Republicans, and what is re uniting Republicans is voting against the Democrats because they're so fearful or so angry at the opposition party, they now view them as evil. What that does is it unfortunately gives a lot of these politicians these mandates to kind of keep going further and further to the extremes of their own party. And at some point, there's got to be some give. I mean, we're not there yet in the Republican Party. Every time you think we've reached the end, somebody finds some more oxygen and keeps pushing outside the, the cul-de-sac there. You know, I, I thought the party had reached its extreme limits in the late 1990s. We're 20 years hence, and every election cycle, it gets crazier. The Democrats aren't too far behind, but I also don't want to make a false equivalency here. The Democratic Party, though, it troubles me deeply, and I think it's wrong on a lot of policy issues is not an existential threat to the country the way the Republican Party is. Yeah. Hey, Mike, I have a question about just quickly just bringing a little more local, kind of our neck of the woods, and you're a former one down in Burbank or Southern Cal. The LA, the city mayor race, Caruso versus Bass. I mean, Caruso, I mean, many will argue is a Democrat in name only, former Republican, but he is talking about pro-business, cleaning up homelessness, cleaning up crime. He has been a success story versus kind of a status quo, you know, member of Congress, 
know, very tied to labor, kind of tied to the status quo of things. Karen Bass, I mean, what what are your general predictions and thoughts there in terms of where the voters in L.A. are, who are really, frankly, Mike, very fed up, I think, uh, who are many of that shrinking middle class and fed up with where things have been headed? Are they looking for a change or, or do you think at the end of the day it's Bass's to lose? Well, Bass is going to win. I mean, she's going to be the next mayor, despite, you know, Rick probably spending another 40 million. I, I sat down with Rick, by the way, before he ran, and we talked about the race a little bit. And what I told him then was this. This race reminds me a lot of 1993 in the same way that it reminded me of 1993 in New York, which is when Giuliani became mayor and it was when became when Richard Reardon became mayor. You got these two Republican mayors heading up the two biggest cities in America. And they were run largely, uh, they were won largely on crime. Crime is an ascendant issue. Um, the difference is there's the partisan nature that we're so highly partisanized uh, that there is no way that any Democrat, uh, most independents in LA County are ever going to vote for anybody who was ever a Republican. So yes, I think that there is a lane for somebody who is going to crack down on crime, will finally do something about the homelessness problem and hopefully streamline City Hall. But it's going to have to come from within the Democratic Party, a purely Democratic Party, not some Republican who just changed uh, party registration or had some history with the Republican Party. We're just too far gone, too partisanized from that being a viable option, which again takes me back to the whole idea that the Republican Party really doesn't have a future in California for a very, very, very long time. So, Mike, you've been a great guest. Thank you very much. And this is incredibly informative and super interesting to me on a you know personal level because I've been fascinated about the subject for a long time. But before we let you go, John and I have a little tradition with our guests, and all eight of our listeners really enjoy this part of the program. <laughs> and that's getting to know you a little bit better on a personal level. So we're going to ask you a series of very quick questions with very quick answers. There is no wrong answer, so don't overthink it. And John, you want to get started? Jump right in. Hot summer day. Favorite ice cream flavor, Mike? Vanilla. As, as boring as that sounds, not, there's nothing better than just a scoop of vanilla ice cream. Favorite song? Ooh, boy, I'm going to say End of the Innocence, Don Henley. First concert? First concert I ever went to was with my family, the Jackson 5 at Dodger Stadium. If you were a cartoon character, who would you be? Woody Woodpecker. Place you have never been to on the globe that you would like to travel to? Oh, Turkey, where East met West. Meet, East met, meets West. <laughs> you know, Mike, you're talking to a couple of Armenian kids here. Yeah, I know. Can... Apologies. Got to know your audience. But hmm. yeah. Interesting. Interesting yeah. subject. Not going there. Just, just throwing out <laughs> yeah. it's interesting. Favorite movie? Favorite movie of all time has got to be The Godfather. Two. One or two. Two. Okay. What you're reading right now? What am I eating right now? <laughs> I'd love to know that too. <laughs> reading, reading, what you're eating oh, and reading. I'm writing a book. I'm not really reading any yeah. books right now, but the last book I read was called The Age of Acrimony. It's a book about American government between 1865 and 1915, which is largely considered the most acrimonious time in American democracy. Until now. Until this moment. Yeah, that's why I'm reading it. <laughs> Mike, favorite meal that your mom cooked for you? Oh, chicken enchiladas. Awesome. Childhood crush. Movie star, TV star. Is there a crush? Oh, boy. High school crush. I, this was way, way, way after high school and probably a little bit creepy, but I really kind of fell in love with Jennifer Aniston when she was on Friends. 
I was in my mid thirties. Is that, I know that's weird, but I'm going to stick with that. Not, not that weird. As long as you didn't stalk her. Hey, Mike, uh, in our last minute here, let's talk a little bit about your book, if you don't mind. Yeah, I was signed a book deal with Simon and Schuster to write a book with the working title is The Latinization of America. And it's really going to explore a lot of the themes, Brian, that I think that you are asking. Um, I'm just of the opinion that as we become a more non-white nation, a much more Hispanic country, the whole idea of our American identity is going to change. I think it's going to change American democracy along with our identity. And I want to explore what both parties are doing right and what both parties are doing wrong. And maybe talk about a little bit about what 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 I see for the future and what, what I'm hopeful about. And I, I do remain hopeful, by the way. This country is going through extraordinary, this world is going through some extraordinary changes. But I do believe that a nation's character is forged through conflict. And as tough as things are right now, I believe that we are we are building a nation and a national character that will serve our children and grandchildren well. Hey, that's awesome, Mike. Thank you. And we're all going to look forward to that book coming out and, and reading it or listening to it on audio, since that's my newest way to like listen and, and read. Yeah. You're an audio book guy, Brian. You definitely are. Well, well, I know because, you know, I'm lazy, fundamentally lazy. <laughs> no, I, I love audio books. I hope it comes out on audio too. But anyway, yeah, Mike, Mike Madrid. Love to come back and visit with you guys when it comes out. I love that. Absolutely. We'd love to have you back, Mike. Thank you so much for being our guest today. This is Brian Kabatek along with my little brother. But big personality, John Kabatek. And Mike, great to have you. Thank you so much. And we'll all get together and have some Brazilian food. And you can tell us about your story of your trip. Looking forward to it, guys. Thanks okay, again, Mike. Take care. Thanks for listening to Cabot Talks. If you liked what you heard, give us a positive review, a thumbs up, a high five, whatever. Leave a comment, share, and subscribe. We're two brothers, two opinions, one California. Cabot Talks. Cabot Talks.